So you had an excursion into noise this afternoon. Isn't it amazing how it rattles? It's like an echo chamber, isn't it, when it gets around? Sometimes I would, when I was staying here as a um, young practitioner, I would, uh, I would just stay on and on. I was the first long-term yogi at IMS, and uh, I, w- I would feel very lonely at the end of the course because everybody was leaving and I was remaining, and so I would engage sometimes in conversation, and it would literally take me a day or two to come back to any kind of sense of quiet after the conversations I had. That never stopped me from doing it (laughs) because the loneliness drove me. And I wonder how much of our conversation is really geared towards offsetting the sense of self-isolation we feel. So I want to talk tonight about authentic action. We have to do a lot of scrub work in this business you know you get it's down and dirty it's like getting in the toilet you know brush in hand and it's not pretty because we see that so much of our action of body speech and mind but let's just take speech for a moment leads with a kind of neediness. We lean into our speech, wanting to be validated, really wanting to be seen. Look at me, please. Acknowledge that I even exist through your attention. First, I want you to feel the sadness of that before I move on. Because you begin to see that so much of our actions of body, speech, and mind are the culmination of the sorrow that we have lived with our whole life. The need to be seen. Because we weren't ever seen sufficiently at a critical age. That need resurfaces again and again, and we don't know how to be seen except through various methods that we have tried. And in conversation, we have the opportunity to self-validate. And the warmth of heart that we have generated for this week gets shoved to the background See, the warmth of heart is the sense of connection. The reason that this week was, what this week was about, and you can sort of plot on a graph what happened, was in, initially we come into the retreat wanting self-validation and fighting and kicking and screaming with all of the internal turmoil we have had to generate in order to get that. And then... In the course of the weeks together, or the days together, we learn how to work um, in alignment with the law, the governing laws of the mind, so that we're not fighting 
against ourselves and being able to accommodate the pain that we have lived with. And so we find over these days a spirit of aliveness coming forth. Energetically, just... It's because we have now become more connected to ourselves and the world. And through that connection, liveness pours forth. We haven't done anything except sort of been a plumber and connected the odd joint of where we have missed our aliveness. It doesn't work. The analogy isn't working, so I'm going to go... I can tell by Carol's laughter. (laughs) (laughs) So then, you know, we have a simple exercise. And, okay, so we all do this. We then go out into the forum and meet in general conversation after the very meticulous exercise that one of these two teachers taught you, how to you know maintain a sense of propriety in conversation to keep coming from the heart. And then you get in the conversation, it's like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right? It's like, okay, you got it all together. You get in your car and you drive down to the first intersection in Barry, and somebody honks their horn at you. It's like, ah! <laughs> you see how the how how the how it springs forth in us the old conditioned patterns of rage and turmoil, because it it's what we have lived with, and we have spent a few days, precious days, learning the beauty of one, but. It just doesn't seem to be in alignment with how to work our lives. And so we go back immediately to the old tendencies. And there's no better place that those tendencies show forth than in our conversation because we can immediately feel where we're coming from in conversation. You just listen. Just listen. That's the mind. Behind that verbiage is the mind that is trying to recover its own sense of validity in the world. And there was a moment in time, and I remember it actually quite distinctly, where I decided, it wasn't actually a decision, it was more imprinted in me somehow, that I wasn't going to move from old conditioning or fear, from fear or old conditioning. I was just going to see what happened. You have to get very quiet for that, very still. And may I say that that stillness is equanimity. And I say that because it's very easy, especially early on in meditation, to think that equanimity is a state, a prepared state of mind to meet the world from a balanced point of view. Nonsense. 
It's releasing what's inauthentic. And then there's a moment of awkwardness when nothing's moving. And the old levers aren't, no, no. And, you do, and it feels a little um, uncertain. And then stillness moves itself. I just want to read, uh, I don't, my style isn't to read too many uh, quotes, but this one is so perfect for what I'm saying. It's from the Tao Te Ching. You have the patience to wait till your mind settles and the water is clear. Can you remove, can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? That's what I was feeling. I was. What's authentic here? What's I don't want to be inauthentic. I have a deep resonance with that word, and I just okay. I don't want to be authentic. You see, and then you see all of the inauthentic, inauthentic uh, reactions coming forth. The need to please, the need to be kind, the ne- not to be kind, the need to be nice, to, to try to ma- smooth things over, to, ma- to be pleasant. That's not authentic. And you realize that niceness is inauthentic. This is not a nice game. But it is a kind game. Which is what both Carol and Guy were alluring to in their talks, alluding to. Because kindness is the movement from stillness. It is the movement from connectedness, interconnection. And so... We have talked, the three of us, about relax, observe, and allow. But I'd like to add one other. Respond. So now instead of roa, we have roar. The lion's roar. Relax, observe, allow, and respond. Because if we do the first three, there will be a response. We are not, we don't die in passivity. People often fear that, you know, if I don't have my anxiety or if I don't, if my action isn't compelled by my sense of righteousness, what will move me? And will I lose my sense of of justice. It's a common question, and many people fear that. But if you look at people who have practiced, you don't see them passive. You see them very engaged. So do not fear that. 
but have faith that something else can come out of you that is more compelling than your righteousness, than our righteousness. Than our need to correct the world. Because if we look at what has motivated much of our action, we really, for the most part, find our pain. Wanting to help. wanting to be good, wanting to be liked. And all action from pain, as well-intended as it is from the motivating point of view, ultimately divides and separates. So I looked at this question of authentic action, and I just want to talk, there are three components to it that come to mind, and I hope I leave you also with a system for coming into your own uh, authenticity. So first of all, the first thing about authentic action is that it's perceptually it's perceptual action, preceptual, not perceptual. It's perceptual too, but it's preceptual. It has a grounding in ethical integrity. And it's not, because I, ha- I have to quickly say this, eth- ethical integrity, as most of us know, it is a moral stance of goodness. And that's not what I'm saying. When we perceive life and wish we can do from quietude, from the absence of the need to validate. Okay, that's why I keep saying that the point of this practice is to step out of self-deception. For me, in my description, there is no other point to practice. It's as obvious to me as going down the wrong road or going down the right road. And we can see that need in every form and expression of our life. In our minds, we see it. How we hold what is arising. How we verbally express what has occurred. How we act. How we move. And so where there's no absence of feedback, there's a huge quantity of feedback coming at us at all, at all time if we're willing to tune in. And the Buddha said someone who's not is like an incompetent cook who just cooks whatever they want irrespective of what, who they're cooking for. And he says a competent cook takes into consideration the feedback of what they're cooking and then cooks in accordance with that wish. But when we don't have when we have all this feedback and we're just going blithely along our way, we are feeding our own incompetency. Also called ignorance. And 
why we emphasize the five precepts so strongly is because they are a way of seeing life. They are on the road in alignment with the freedom we seek. And when we become inauthentic, you'll see that we violate the precepts very regularly. And so they're indicators. It's an indication that we are in, on the wrong path, that we're gone astray. And so they're very useful in being able to allow us to see, okay, wait a minute, what is this going, what's going on here? Where am I trying to validate self? Where am I trying, stepping into myself rather than out of myself? Let me just look at this. Let me be willing to look. Willing to look. Willing to observe. What we find then is that authentic action is the willingness to surrender our separation. And so however we involve ourselves perceptually, we can use them for a moral stance and, to, and for remorse and guilt and shame because if, you have, if, you're lined, if we're lined up in that way and you take on the precepts and you're not interested in stepping out of self-deception, believe me, they will, come, they will hit you with more angst and pain than almost anything else. Because you'll see how you live in the world and be unwilling to step out of yourself. You'll just find yourself carrying an enormous amount of shame and remorse and have no idea what hits you. So they're not about shame and remorse. So the first characteristic of authentic action is perceptual action. But I, I want to, we'll move through now. I'm not, you never finished with it. And I'll say one other thing because it strikes me as I. When we are claiming our place on the earth, because this culture has so much doubt about where they are and who they are, that we never claim our place on the earth. And I think I've spoken to either groups or I don't know when I've said it, but I've said it sometime during the course, that we're always, we're kind of in a kind of a state of restlessness in which we are questioning where we are all the time. And so we haven't ever landed because we doubt ourselves. And part of that doubt is doubting the um, quality of our conduct. We, this is not a culture that is ethically based. And because of that, we have incorporated, I even saw this commercial, I was down watching some basketball, and there was this commercial about this guy who was getting coke, and he was watching the person, the, the, the clerk at the counter, and he was getting coke at the filler, and then he would drink some, and then he'd fill it up and drink some, and fill it up and drink some. And then there, and he kept watching the eyes of the clerk to make sure that he wasn't being seen. And then coke came in with their banner that said, 
Stealing sips is not a felony in any of the states. So that's the culture we live in, right? That's it. That's the culture we live in. So, okay, but that isn't how I have to be. I'm not going to own my place on the earth if I have to keep looking at the clerk to see if he's (laughs) catching me. Do you see that? And many times during the course of the day, we give up our place on the earth for the pleasurable response of what we're seeking that's not in line with the precepts. And precepts, you are a solid rock. You are an oak tree. This is where I stand. And I don't need to look around and apologize to anyone. Now, unless we're willing to stand like that, root system, then we will blow in the wind. Okay, so the second quality of authentic action is what I call non-goal-oriented action. Non-goal. It's what we're trying to entice you towards and walking meditation. It's not about quantity. See, most of our action is quantifiable. I'm reaching for. It's the for, the aliveness of the movement is for the procurement of the goal. I'm walking to get somewhere. And so from that point of view, life is lived only from goal to goal. How many of us have walked to the store to get a loaf of bread or whatever and missed the entire journey of the, of the walk? I suggest that if we look carefully at the actions, we miss most of our life. And it's this sense of busyness that we have, this goal-driven productivity. When you, we get out of here, the main reason most people don't find time to sit anymore is because they think it's useless compared to what they could do in 45 minutes if they let themselves be productive. So when you say 45 minutes of sitting still in a busy day that's already filled or 45 minutes where I could vacuum and clean and do the things that I don't have time to do, which do you think is going to win out? We don't have a chance from this goal-oriented. But if you look, if you look at culture at large, all you see is productivity as the key indicator of how our efficiency, our effectiveness, even medical, I love Oh, I can get so frustrated with the medical community because they miss what healing really is, which has nothing to do with getting the pill to you on time. It's the quality of the relationship, the quality of the connection. That's where the healing occurs. In fact, they have found people who have cancer have an equal survival rate, and a better survival rate, in meeting with like-minded uh, like, uh, similar uh, cancer patients in group where they can connect and bond as they do in 
with chemotherapy treatment. The, in other words, meeting in group is as effective at prolonging one's life as chemotherapy treatment is. You see, what comes in when the goal, the procurement, the accomplishment, the productivity factor isn't awareness? What does this mean? Walking, and I would mention, you, there's a couple ways you can walk. You can walk with awareness, like you're, you're the one that's fabricating, or you can walk within awareness. See it pre-existing and leading your walking. And the movement of life, can, if, when it's only focused on what the movement is to ascertain, has no relationship to the moment and expression of that movement. The presence, that the awareness, is not about the derivation of what's going to happen. It's about the expression of aliveness that is occurring all the time. And so authentic action from stillness is action within awareness. And that's where serendipity happens. When you only know you're going to the store to get bread, a thousand wondrous things could be happening along the way and they go unnoticed because they have nothing to do with your bread. I was staying up doing a self-retreat at Gaia House a few years ago. Went down to the library just to, I was just looking for something to read, a Dharma book. They have quite an extensive library there. And I was just looking, and I just pulled down a book. I didn't even look at what, you know, how you do that sometimes. Okay, I put it on the table, and the book fell open. And I just started reading it, and I said, my God, this sounds familiar. Like, it had an impact immediately, like, recognizable. I look at the cover of the book, and it said something like, Conversations with Nisargadatta Maharaj. I look at the date of this particular dialogue, January 1980. A realization occurs to me that this dialogue is me. (laughs) This is somebody recorded, and I remember the recorder, recorded this dialogue with me and Nisargadatta. I didn't know it was in a book. I didn't know what book I was taking down. Of all the books in the thing, this fell open to this particular page. Does anybody would like to calculate the odds of that? (laughs) (laughs) The serendipity. The universe wants to get it. Have you ever noticed that? That you turn around and suddenly whatever it is that you were pondering is there in front of you when you're not so fixed upon where you're going in that moment? The creativity, the creative response 
of life comes forth. It's beautiful. It's wondrous. It's part of the mystery of being alive. It's part of the magic. So then somebody in Seattle Inside who heard that story came to me and said, well, the chances were one in something like 30 million. Because <laughs> he calculated the number of books that must be in the library by the number of pages, by the number... I don't give a... <laughs> See, the goal is not more important in the here and now. Never, never, never. When we're brushing our teeth, the movement of busyness says the next thing, the next thing. Look beyond this, the next thing. Because that's where the sense of validation occurs. Validation, self-validation doesn't occur here and now. You can't get any rubber to meet the road here and now for your sense of validity because now doesn't hold any sense of validity. It holds no sense of production. It's open. It's wide space. So in order for the mind to confiscate and move forward with itself, it has to think futuristically about what it's going to do. And so we're constantly up against our self-validation in our actions. But with the resolve, the roar of the lion. I don't care. I'm not moving. I'm not going to move out of conditioning or fear. Come what may. You see the ruthlessness? And now... The third one. I'm moving faster than I would like through these, but the third one is actions, authentic action, counters old conditioning. Now, actions, we, got, we have to understand this because it's, I don't think uh, we're well-versed. We may have insights. Some of you on this, during this retreat, have seen your lives up close and personal, and you've had insights about it. And many people who I see year after year come and have the same insight. Oh, you know, I'm, I need to get out of my job, or I'm in a bad this or that, or just general psychological or situational realizations. But every year they're in the same predicament. There's been no movement. It's because... You can have insights dramatically deep or about your life. And unless, they're, unless they meet the cells of the body in action, unless they, they, they stay conceptual, they stay in kind of a, you know, yes, and there's some trickle-down effect probably over 20 years, and you might find you know, getting yourself out of a bad job long after you should have done it. You can, we can speed this thing up if we bring it into action. Be willing to counter the old condition because what keeps us from that, old, that spontaneous new direction is our old need for safety 
is our old insecurities. And so we get frozen within our old doubt. You know, maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't know if I Again, it's questioning our place on earth. For instance, this afternoon when you were speaking, some of you might have even had this occur. You know, you're, you're speaking to somebody and they're not paying attention to you. And if you are of the Western vintage, quite likely you have a moment of feeling a, band, a rejection, you know, that they're, not, they're kind of look at, look at listening to you halfway. You feel the inattention and you think, oh, if you have that old condition, you'll think, oh, the, the rejection, a feeling of rejection will come or abandonment issues. Or you might, if you have your different condition, you know, I feel unlovable. I'm not worth knowing, you might say to yourself. This, this proves it. Or you might have fears of being excluded. and You know, see, we meet the moment with our projection. A few mornings ago, I said some things. And all of a sudden, I got a number of notes claiming that I was like the Catholic Church (laughs) or the Baptist preacher that they lived with, or the stern father. Somewhere between the Pope (laughs) and the parental grandfather, you know, it was just a meeting, it was an eruption. My teacher, our teacher, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, when I was leaving the monastery, he said to me, teach anatta, and don't be afraid to shake him up. And his life was that statement. He sh- I remember sitting there, some man of some means and wealth who most people would kowtow to, came up to Ajahn Buddha Dasa and was playing with him about all the money he could give to the monastery. And Bu- Ajahn Buddha Dasa said, take your money and throw it off that cliff. He was uncorruptible. See, that's knowing your place on earth. Not project, not this fan, oh, you know, not this. This is called total accountability. This is radical accountability. Radical accountability is knowing your mind has no place in leakage onto someone else. We accept what is happening in us not as a statement of the person that we are blaming, but as a product of our own process. And we allow no leakage to that whatsoever. Any leakage, you do not know your place on earth. Your wandering ghost. That's it. Now, how are we going to say that so that you hear it?
See, it isn't a nice game. But it is kind. If you think life is going to treat you nicely, we have created a fishbowl here in which we're very gentle, nice, and sweet, and all of that. And you're going to step out of here, and it's going to get turned upside down. And if you think that your spiritual practice depends upon that fishbowl, you don't know your place on earth. Kindness. The universe is not nice, but it is kind. And it plays hardball. It'll give you a breast tumor. It'll take your partner of 60 years. And what is it saying when it does that? How could that possibly be kind? From one vantage point, it could never be conceived of as being kind. From another, it's a continual bow of appreciation. But we have to know our place. We have to know the authentic, our authentic place to perceive it in alignment with the message it's intended. So we're radically accountable. Take a moment, and if there's any leakage, if, if that anger that we are feeling is suddenly leaks out under that hermetically sealed door and finds an object of righteous indignation, then we have created every war, every murder, every form of hostility and violence since time immemorial. So let's, let me talk for a few minutes about some practical ways to come into authentic action. The first thing is that we have to be willing to step out of self-validating maneuvering. We have to be willing to face the pain that wants us to keep trying to reaffirm ourselves through the world. Please look at me. Please accept me. Please like me. And even if we live 10,000 years Driven by that behavior, at the end of 10,000 years, we would be no more self-satisfied than we are now because the validity from outside can never assuage the pain we feel inwardly. We have to go to the pain that we feel inwardly, inwardly that's driving this behavior and see it. This is what the Buddha meant, the first noble truth. We either work in coordinated effort in alignment with this thing or we work at odds with it. 
And we have to have enormous intent. And we've used this word, all of us have used this word up here a lot. We ha- because, believe me, everyone else around us be- trying to validate, trying to get the extra sip of Coke before the clerk sees... culturally induced insensitivity works against the intention, works against this. That's why we meet, and we meet far away from And we say, okay, look, this is what we got to do. Secret society, right? Foistered. And then... We have to move it into action. And one of the ways I suggest doing that is to write down four or five action statements that you find yourself over and over again giving yourself away. And the next time, you so right here, tonight or sometime, you take a pencil and paper out. You write four or five action statements. See, that starts the process of something we know that we need to do but we never get it into action, so now we're actually going to start moving it into the action of movement of writing. This starts the cellular evolution necessary to embody that insight because this is an evolution of the cells of our body. And we also... One of the things that I find most practical is firming up the resolution of body so that when I find myself in doubt, confused, not knowing what to do or say, the need, kind of the yearning for someone to look at me, to be pleased, all of the different neurotic ways that we go about our day, the body, in its stability, can ground that out like a lightning rod can to a bowl of lightning. What am I second-guessing here? This is where I am. There's only one place in the world where we can be in this moment. There is no other opportunity, no other possibility. There's only one thought you can be having. There's no other possibility you could be having another thought besides the one you're having. There's, the now only holds one possibility. Everything else is fictional. But the mind betrays that, especially with its self-doubt. So I go to the body. I don't listen to the mind. And then I ground that intent. I ground that oneness of being, that absolute certainty of where I stand, the nowness of my experience. And whatever neurosis is coming up is not of now. It's of then, what I have believed, what I have assumed then, in the past, about myself. And when I meet it with the solidity of body, the now of body, it cannot stand. It cannot persist.
Now, sometimes when I know I'm walking into a very difficult situation in which my mind is going to kick up a lot of dirt, I'll do what I call cognitive rehearsal, I will, which is not spontaneity, obviously, but it does prepare me for the jolt of what I'm going to meet. And so I'll think about the images of where I'm going and what is going to quite likely happen, and I see myself grounding into my body. I rehearse it, and it's very helpful. It's not spontaneity. It's pre-planned, but it is very helpful. Because there was an old joke once about some man who had one line in a play about some cannon that's firing and the enemy is coming. So he gets out, he rehearses this thing over and over again. He gets into the play, the cannon goes off, and he goes, what the hell was that? (laughs) That's what we're going to be like after nine days. We're all lined up here. Roar, roar. The cannon, the horn's going to honk. The cannon's going to go off. And we're going to, for many of us, we're going to wonder what happened. It's helpful. It's helpful. Until we get away to sink down, to own ourselves own ourselves again and again. And to fall into posture, you see what posture represents when we sit straight as we sit. We sit like this for a reason. We are grounding ourselves in a posture that is represents stability of mind, openness with shoulders open, stone ground certainty. Now, that's a very different posture than this, isn't it? Or this, you see? And so what's, that's what we're trying to do, is that the cells of the body are part of the whole evolution of what happens when we sit. So if authenticity means something to you, if it's a word that resonates, Let it lead you into the array and display of life. Where's your authenticity in this moment? Is my response, am I responding authentically in quiet, in stillness? Or from just old conditioning, wants and neediness, This is available for anyone. Not on retreat. No environment needed. No special environment needed. Mistakes, forget them, doesn't matter. If you're mistake prone, so be it. You're probably better off because you'll be learning every time you fall down. And they say you'll progress at the rate of one step and one body length as we fall continually. (laughs) In quiet, 
in stillness. Now I know what's authentic. And may all of us live from there. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.